everyone, David Warren here. Welcome again to the Authentic Dad Podcast. We inspire fathers on to have more connection, aliveness, presence in their life with themselves, children, partners, but not just for dads. Lots of women listen, and I appreciate all the women who um, have reached out, give me feedback, who are listening. Um, it's for you too, even though it's called the Authentic Dad Podcast, women can still listen. Anyway, I got Dr. Enrique Aviedo today. He's a psychiatrist. He specializes in addiction. And this conversation is very important. We talk about opioid addiction, addiction in general, and most importantly, how to talk to your kids about drugs, about addiction. Um, something I remember vividly when I was a kid, how they tried to do in the 80s, you know, with those commercials with, you know, with the egg in the frying pan. We talked about that a little bit. Um, I don't know how effective or not effective it was, but he gives us tips Um Dr. Oviedo, about how to do that today in the modern world. Please reach out to me, furthercoach.com, F-U-R-T-H-U-R, coach.com. I do a free 30-minute phone consultation um, on Instagram, Facebook, Further Coaching, F-U-R-T-H-U-R. I hope wherever you are, you're safe and well and healthy. And um, thank you all so much for your support, and I'll see you on the other side. So I'm here with Dr. Enrique Oviedo, and he completed medical school at the University of Buffalo School of Medicine in 2007. He's a University of Maryland trained psychiatrist who is triple boarded in adult, child, and adolescent and addiction psychiatry. He currently serves as a medical director for addiction treatment at both Catholic Charities of Baltimore and Matt Clinics, or MAT Clinics. He has continued on faculty at the University of Maryland School of Medicine as a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Dr. Oviedo is on the Public Policy Committee of the Maryland Society of Addiction Medicine and has been involved in several advocacy efforts related to mental health and addiction treatment. Thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. Thanks for having me. That is uh, quite a biography, my friend. Very, very impressive. Yeah, so I, um, you know, my kind of, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor and I always liked working with kids. And uh, during medical school, um, I hadn't planned to be a psychiatrist, but that's just kind of what I fell in love with. And it was kind of only natural that I uh, became a child psychiatrist. Um, so uh, I finished that fellowship in 2012 and went right out into practice. And I plan to just just be a child psychiatrist for 40, 50 years, see kids mm -hmm. all day, every day. And um, what I found was e even as a child psychiatrist, you end up seeing some adults. Right. And so picture me... Uh, in Baltimore, which sometimes gets labeled as the, the heroin capital of the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing mostly kids, but I'm also seeing adults in the mix. And I'm seeing way more addiction than I, than I planned. Uh, alcohol, cocaine, people trying to stop smoking, and uh, especially opioid addiction. In the adults or the kids or both? In the adults, primarily okay, right. in the adults. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly in the teens, the 16, 17, 18 year olds, you're 
you know, almost as expected, you know, experimenting with cigarettes and alcohol and marijuana, but the, um, you know, harder drugs, so to speak, the heroin, cocaine, um, benzodiazepines, um, I was seeing much more of that in the adults than, than, than I planned. And right. I quickly realized, um, unless I know how to treat addiction, I'm not going to be a very good psychiatrist working in Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. So after about only one year in practice, I, uh, I decided to go back to training at the University of Maryland. Uh, I, I did the addiction psychiatry fellowship for a year, returned to practice, and for the past five years, uh, I've been working to roll out integrated mental health treatment uh, so that we're doing both uh, psychiatry and substance use disorder treatment. So somebody can just come to one place and, and get both both treatments if needed. And you, you still are seeing children and adults. Correct. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because you, you're, you're treating kids and then the adults come in and I imagine it's like, oh, I see how this problem formed because your mom or your dad has this problem and it's like this whole system and you felt like you really needed that extra um, knowledge or toolbox to, to do what you wanted to do. What, um, I mean, addiction is a word that everybody's very familiar with. Could we just define it? Sure. Cause it's, a, you know, I think sometimes like it's helpful to know like, what, what are we talking about from a psych, from a psychiatrist's point of view? What do you consider addiction? So the, the core, the core element of addiction is the loss of control where somebody starts using a substance impulsively and compulsively despite it causing impairment in their their work, their family, their, their relationships, their physical health, um, that the, the the cravings and the desire to use is, is so powerful that despite not wanting to use anymore, that person has lost control. You know, the brakes are off, so to speak, and they continue to use despite um, negative life consequences. Right. The classic can't stop and not only can stop, keep doing it despite, you know, job loss. Um, divorce, DUI, um, uh, any any type, you know, I'm a lawyer, so legal problems, um, I guess any number of things. And what you're talking about is substance um, abuse or addictions. There are behavioral addictions as well, like let's say gambling, sex, um, things like that. Is, is Would you consider that in the same category? Great question. So Gambling or problem gambling is actually um, categorized uh, with all the other addictions of, of various substances where the research done with gambling has shown that the same brain changes that are seen with somebody who's addicted to gambling are also seen with people addicted to alcohol, opiates, benzos. So mm-hmm. gambling is lumped in with all the substances of, of abuse. There are other behavioral addictions, uh, 
sex, pornography, internet, gaming, and and at least preliminarily, the, the brains don't match the other ones that I just mentioned, and so they're mm-hmm. they're kind of being studied, you know, separately. And there's a lot of research being done, but they they are different as far as physiologic brain changes that happen compared mm-hmm. to gambling, opiates, alcohol, nicotine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I would imagine, and it sounds like more research needs to be done, but behaviorally, some people with those things, hey, they can't stop. They're doing it despite um, negative consequences in their life and, and so on and so forth. Um, what do you say, I, I hear this sometimes, where someone who, let's say, is an alcoholic or is a drug addict, and we hear a lot, well, they have a disease. And then there's other people who say, that's not a disease. You know, I, I have a disease. I have this medical problem. Do you consider it as a psychiatrist addiction to disease? Yes. So, you know, a lot of research has been done in the past 15, 20 years. And we now we have a much deeper understanding of the genetics of addiction. So, you know, the number right now that's quoted is about is about 60% of people who are addicted to any particular substance that, that you can link the, the cause of that de- addiction developing. It, it was in their genetics. They were predisposed to genetics. And for anyone who knows somebody struggling with alcohol, say um, it, it's probably a safe bet that other people in their family also have addiction to alcohol and that it's, it's this kind of generational problem. And, and so that's where, you know, a lot of times people with addiction, they get, they, they're, they're told, you know, this is just a lack of willpower. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, it's a spiritual failing. It's a moral deficit where, whereas I think of it as, you know, through no fault of their own, this person was genetically loaded to develop this disease and you know th- their genes lit up and activated when exposed to alcohol and, yeah. and kind of the, the disease process took off on them you know we, we have all these advanced uh kind of brain scan tests now mris and fmris and and people struggling with addiction we can see the reward circuits um the circuits going to the prefrontal cortex which is in charge of judgment and planning Mm -hmm. and the circuits going to the hippocampus which is in charge of memory they are altered um so between the genetics that we understand a lot better and what we're seeing on you know brain imaging it's 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 very clear that physiologic changes are happening and and this is a disease like any other disease yeah no it's incredible because as, as an attorney, once in a while, you know, somebody will call my office and they'll need help with this or that. And we'll look up, let's say, their background and they'll have like 10 things on there. And a telltale sign that there's an addiction problem is, let's say, three or four DUIs or theft. There's a lot of thefts on their record. And I can say, oh, did you have a substance abuse problem? Yes, I did. And it's just, I can, just that idea of this part of your brain with judgment besides probably needing money and um, various other things to support the addiction, I can totally imagine because they'll say, you know, I was like a different person than 
the whole thing was a blur. I didn't even know what I was doing. And just that idea of this part of your brain, you said, particularly with judgment, I guess just isn't, isn't working right. Absolutely. Um, and people, you know, you mentioned theft, you know, people with addiction, they get, they get stuck in this cycle of being intoxicated on the substance. And then, uh, you know, especially uh, as the disease progresses, they go from intoxication to withdrawal of that substance. And then the withdrawal leads to drug seeking behavior. So when somebody is in the depths of heroin withdrawal, yeah. which is described as, you know, one of the worst feelings a human can feel, you know, a picture, yeah. um, the very, the, the, having inf uh, the flu, influenza, and the very worst flu sickness you've ever had, you know, picture that day in and day out, people will do anything to, yeah. um, to get out of that withdrawal state. Right. No, it's like this vicious cycle that, you know, they withdraw and the withdrawal is so painful then they have to seek the drug to stop the withdrawal. It's, it's like around and around we go. Um, let's get a little more specific. So someone like you, highly trained addiction psychiatrist, and um, I know opioids is a big problem. Later, maybe we can get into the Pandora's box of, of medical marijuana and all of that. Um, where do you start if someone comes in to clear they're really struggling, let's say from some type of opioid addiction? Where do, what's, what's the first step you're going to treat them? Yeah, so uh, a little bit of background. So we, right now in the U.S., we have 2.1 million people with an opioid use disorder. We've got about uh, 50,000 fatal overdoses from exclusively opiates a year. Um, 50,000? 50,000 people die oh a year God. of just, just pure opioid overdose. I had no idea it was that high. That's terrible. Um, there's, if you add up all fatal overdoses, it comes up to 70,000. Mm -hmm. um, and most of those, an opiate is also involved, but 50,000 a year, just, just purely from opiate um, overdoses. And only, seven, only about 17% of people have access and seek care. Um, so it's, you know, it's the, the biggest problem we're facing is still access to care. Huge problem, not enough support, hence, I guess, the name opioid crisis. So, um, so it, it's very hard for a consumer, somebody struggling with opiates to, to kind of to know where to go, because you'll have some people who will say, well, just get into Narcotics Anonymous and go to some groups and get a sponsor or a lot of people will try going to their primary care doctor. Yeah. And you know, some primary care doctors are comfortable treating opioid use disorder. Many are mm. not. And they're just, there aren't enough addictionologists around yeah. to, to, to treat this problem. And that's where there's been this big push to ask pediatricians, internists, family medicine docs, you know, to say, you know, we, in large part, the medical community created this monster with, with the overprescription of opiates in the 90s. And it's really an all hands on deck yeah. um, solution that, that we need. Because not everybody's going to be able to, A, have insurance, be able to, if they don't have insurance, or even if they do, afford someone um, as highly trained and specialized, um, gosh, a lot of people probably don't have a primary care physician. 
I know it's a really basic question, but what are some, we say opiates, give me some opioids. What are some examples of like the most common ones um, that, that are prescribed and that people are becoming addicted to? Or, like, or what is an opiate, opiate? Sure. So we have, we have pharmaceutical opiates. Mm-hmm. So those are medicines uh, like Percocet, Vicodin, Oxycontin, morphine, um, and then we have illicit opiates like heroin. And more, more recently, they've been mixing in a synthetic opiate called fentanyl. Mm. They've been scrambling it into the heroin. And, and fentanyl is far, far more potent than heroin is. And, and even now, um, um, sometimes when people go to buy heroin off the street, there's no heroin in it. It's just pure... Hmm. illicitly made fentanyl that that's most of it's coming over from china and so the the heroin of the 80s and 90s yeah it is is what's on the street today it it's nothing like it is so much more potent and addictive than than it was like like completely synthetic from a completely like it doesn't come from the poppy plant or anything like that no we're we're talking a a chemist in a lab mixing mm. chemicals and coming up with the most potent opiate that they can. Eesh. It's horrifying. <laughs> so, and you're saying that version a lot, this synthetic on occasion in, in Baltimore and your practice or things of that. Yeah. So in, in Baltimore, essentially almost a hundred percent of the heroin on the street is is either pure fentanyl or a scramble of, of heroin mm. fentanyl. It is, it is really, really hard to find pure heroin. And it's rare that on urine drug screening, we'll find heroin without the fentanyl. And, and it's the fentanyl, that's the reason why the overdose numbers keep going up and up and up, mm-hmm. is heroin of the past wouldn't necessarily strong enough to make somebody fatally overdose, but the the fentanyl on the street now, even with experienced heroin users, um, all it takes is a batch of heroin with, you know, fentanyl that's a little bit more potent than than, than what they're used to and, mm-hmm. and, and somebody dies. How, let's say someone does have access to someone like you, how do we treat them? So with, with opioid use disorder specifically, there are three, um, three medication options. Mm-hmm. One is methadone. Right. Heard of that. And methadone's been around since the 70s and the whole methadone clinic infrastructure um, was developed for all the troops returning from Vietnam who, who got addicted to heroin while they were serving over there. So it, it, it's been methadone essentially since the Vietnam era. And then in... Uh, the early 2000s, um, there was a medicine that came to market called buprenorphine, which most people know it as Suboxone. Yep, heard of that. Um, so the advantage of the advantages of Suboxone is that um, any doctor can prescribe it. It can be prescribed out of out of any medical office. So a, a pediatrician, an internist, a psychiatrist can prescribe suboxone or buprenorphine as opposed to 
you know, with methadone clinics, there's only one reason why you go to a methadone clinic, it's to go get methadone. And so confidentiality, there were some issues with confidentiality and because of all the stigma, a lot of people wouldn't seek treatment because they thought they would be outed by going to a methadone clinic. Whereas with sure. Suboxone, somebody can come to go, go to any medical professional and be treated and no one knows why you're there. It, it's completely yeah. confidential. And then the third one, an injectable medicine called Vivitrol. That's a once a month injection. It is a non-opiate, which distinguishes it from Suboxone and Methadone. And um, um, that, that's, that's the third option. Mm -hmm. So you obviously would, as a practitioner, prescribe something like that um, medically and medicinally. And would you recommend, let's say, a psychotherapy or, um, because I imagine there's that physical component, but then the, what maybe got someone to try it or use it in the first place, sometimes I see addiction as like the symptom of let's say depression, anxiety, trauma, and sort of that underlying thing that maybe got them on the path to begin with. Do you deal with that as well as a psychiatrist or is, or is that something to say, go see the psychologist or the psychotherapist in combination with what you're doing? Yeah. So as, as, both an addictionologist and a psychiatrist, you know, so I'm looking to see is, is there any kind of self-medication component here? Mm -hmm. Is there any underlying mood disorders like bipolar disorder or depression go. or anxiety or, or PTSD? Um, and then kind of based on what I find, you know, I, I help triage that person to are they going to benefit from a therapist to do some individual therapy? Do they need some family therapy? Cause all of their family relationships are strained. Um, do they need, uh, there's a service that's, service called PRP that helps people, you know, all the things like getting an ID and applying for um, social services and getting help with sorting out all their legal issues and working on housing and um you know maybe it, um, going back to school seeking employment um you know that there are a lot of pieces that need to be picked yeah. up and put back together when somebody's in early recovery i mean as you're explaining this it just dawned it dawned on me but it just strikes me how complicated this really is because you have a person they have an addiction and, and obviously their, their, their body physically is addicted to that and there's withdrawal and there's medications, but then there's so much more. Maybe they lost their job. They need social services. Maybe they have an underlying psychiatric problem, bipolar, depression. A lot of it could be their environment, where they're, where they're living, where they grew up, their genetics. And it's just so complicated, especially if you don't have the time, the resources, um, or go to somebody like who knows what they're doing, you know, because I'm sure there are many primary care physicians that really aren't qualified to handle all of the, the complexities of this. So it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and so that, that's why you think, I think you're a double threat because you have the, the psychiatry, the child psychiatry background, you have the addiction specialist. Um, it's incredible. You know, they, there's that saying, you know, it, it takes a village to, to raise a yeah. child. You know, it, 
it, it takes a village to help somebody recover from from addiction. And you know, we I listed all those things, but you know, the, the list keeps going. You know, the right. people with addictions tend to have um, you know many many medical comorbidities, and people who are injection drug users, um, you know, a percentage of them have or will acquire HIV or hepatitis yep. C or you know, they're not taking care of their, their diabetes, their, their blood pressure, they stop seeing the dentist. So they start developing, you know, um, yeah. Dental abscesses, you know, that the, the list so, keeps there's this compounding problem, like one thing after the other. And I would imagine once they get into recovery, it takes years and there's probably some relapse. I'd be surprised if there, there wasn't. And it's a lifetime process of maintaining your sobriety. I mean, it's, it's heavy duty. I would like to shift gears slightly. This is called the Authentic Dad Podcast, as you know. And probably you, I don't know. I grew up in the 80s, right? And in the 80s, they would have that. I don't know if you remember this commercial. This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs, right? They would put the, uh, the egg in the pan and it would sizzle. And when I was in school, we would have the police officer come and talk to us about drugs, like the D.A.R.E. program, I think they called it. And um, all these commercials, I think it was during, during Reagan. And I'm wondering, like, what would you say to fathers to, how, how do we talk to our kids about this? I mean, you know, obviously I'm saying don't do drugs. You know, it's horrible. It's bad for you. It can cause a lot of problems. But do you have any specific um, strategies to talk about our children before they get to try something that puts them on some path like this? So I think, you know, I, I, I remember those commercials too. And I, I think we've learned it, it, it doesn't help to um, s- sensationalize things. You know, our, our, our kids are smart and, you know, f- for example, you know, take, take an average teen has a friend who tries marijuana for the first time yep. as a pleasant experience and nothing bad happened, you know, that they're going to, think about that experience and say, well, everything these adults have told me is just nonsense. Mm-hmm. They, they have no idea what they're talking about. Um, so, um, so I think not, not sensationalizing, I, I think. So, so we know, yeah. a few, we know several things are protective against drug experimentation and drug use. So, um, you know, kids, kids having a lot of structure and being involved in activities, sports and clubs or, you know, religious groups, you know, so keeping them busy, supervision. So, uh, you know, setting reasonable curfews for your, you know, teenage kids and kind of knowing where they are. And if they're going to knowing the parents of the friend's house, they're, they're going to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just, we know kids who achieve, um, you know, academically who, who are high achievers and who are supported in their academics are, are less likely to use an experiment. Um, but, but I think even maybe more importantly than all that is just, just having that open line of communication and saying, you know, I, I know people are vaping and juuling and that's the new thing. And I, and I want us to be able to talk about that. You know, I know, um, you know, the, the medicinal cannabis is being 
diverted and it's very easy for teens to get that. And if, if you have questions about it yeah, or reviews, let, let's just talk about it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be mad. I would much rather us just talk about the pros and cons and what ifs and, you know, let's, um, um, so, so I yeah, think no. just being honest and open with kids. I, I love that, you know, they, you know, being present, you know, we're not, not in sort of like a, a CIA way, like, where are you going? Who are you hanging out with? Paying attention, not making the conversation taboo. Um, I think you said something, um, sensationalizing it like this big dramatic, you know, because I'm remembering a friend I was growing up with, his father would make the biggest deal about smoking marijuana, which I think we should talk about next. But to the point, like, if you ever do that, you know, it's it's going to be, you know, God only knows what, as it turns out, the father was always stoned, you know. <laughs> and, of course, the kid, what happened? He grew up and he became, did, became the same the same problem. And I think it was really interesting. Maybe if you would have said, talk to him like you're saying, and here the, here's, the, here's the pluses, here's the minuses, here's what I'm concerned about, build trust with, build presence. Um would have maybe had a different outcome, but probably there's no magic bullet or no answer. I, would, I was really just curious, like, does, you know, the 80s, they, they, they did sensationalize it, and is there's like a new model for how we can do it. Um, those commercials in retrospect are kind of funny. And, you know, we, we know with teenagers, we know developmentally they're, they're thrill seekers, and, yep. and they all have that, you know, Superman complex, and a lot of times, whatever you tell them to do, they're going to look to do the opposite um, to, you yeah. know, there's that rebelling against authority quality of, of teenagers. So um, that's why I think just talking about it openly and honestly is better than the, yeah. you know, don't do drugs, drugs are bad approach. Um, the, yeah. the one other thing I wanted to uh, plug in was um, many kids have their first exposure to opiates and benzos like Xanax. Yep. through the, um, the, the medication bottles of their parents or grandparents that are left in the medicine cabinet. Oh, yeah. yeah. Gra grandma and, got a surgery and she's got some leftover oxys or something, right? Right. The, the, you know, the typical story is somebody goes in for a surgery, gets 90 oxys, uses two, and the bottle stays in the medicine cabinet just in case mm -hmm. people you know, it, it's not always easy to dispose of medications or people just worry that, well, if I'm in pain at some point in the future, these might come in handy. Sure. And, and, and so many teenagers had their first exposure from mm -hmm. old medicines in the medicine cabinet. And that's where I'll tell dads out there, yeah, buy a $15 lock box on Amazon and, and, and all control substances, you know, keep, keep them locked up. Such a great point and so interesting because I think some people are like, I'll just lock the liquor cabinet up and like, well, that that's good, but that's not the one you really want to worry about, I don't think, as much. Mm -hmm. um, that's a really good point. Thanks for bringing, yeah, because I think there's probably half, not half, but a, a percentage of people out there who, who have like old stuff lying around from their whatever surgery or even pregnancy and then I try to give my wife some. Or dental procedure. She had a C-section, yeah, dental procedure. Well, I guess that's a problem, right? They're just giving, which is a good segue because they're, they're prescribing this for everything. It has been said to me by a psychiatrist that he would rather people do smoke weed 
um, because then do opioids. And his opinion was, we had this sort of philosophical discussion that marijuana is a medicine, that we need more research. And my observation, as we, you and I spoke about, is that I feel like with marijuana, you have like the advocates who are like, this cures cancer. This is the greatest thing ever. And then, and maybe I'm simplifying a little bit. And then some people think this causes psychosis. Stay away from it. And of course, many states, it's completely legal. There's medical marijuana, but it still seems like a very, not to get too deep into it, hot topic. So what does the psychiatrist say, the addiction psychiatrist say about weed? Oh, gosh, where to start? Um, <laughs> so here's what we know. The, 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 the developing brain, the brain does not, uh, the, brain has, the brain hasn't reached full maturation until about age 25 or 26. So really? I'll, yes. Didn't realize it was that old. Wow. Yes. So I'll, I'll kind of separate out marijuana for adolescents, young adults, and marijuana for people with fully developed brains. Right. So, so let's talk about fully developed brains and assume that a 12-year-old or 16-year-old should probably stay away from the weed. So th- there's... There's good research about the the benefits of of cannabis for um, for some conditions. So there are some there are certain seizure disorders that respond well, um, and it, it's helped people um, people with neuropathic pain or certain types of nerve pain, um, people with HIV/AIDS who um, are struggling with um, wasting syndrome and are losing a lot of weight and don't have an appetite or people undergoing chemotherapy for cancer um, or spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. So there's really good research for, for certain conditions. Nope. Um, I, I'm even struggling to, to yeah, yeah, yeah. From, from there, where do I go? So um, for many conditions, especially mental health, there is not a lot of good research to suggest it improves outcomes. The caveat there is for a very long time, up until just recently, it's been really hard to do good quality research. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's only, I believe there's like one farm somewhere in Kentucky that has the one DEA license to grow cannabis for... Mm-hmm for medical research and um, the research just hasn't been done. And we know, we know cannabis has like, you know, 300 or so psychoactive components. And we really only know about THC and CBD cannabidiol. And then there's a 200 other plus, you know, mm-hmm. components of it that we just, we just have such little so this, research. So this is a really complicated substance with all of these. Yeah, it sounds like there's not a lot of research done in the United States because federally it's illegal, but I know they're probably doing, I think in Israel and some other countries, of course, are doing it, but 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 here, not allowed, right? Right. So I- Israel, um, you know, d- does seem to be leading the way. And I I, I feel like the there there is a sea change happening mm-hmm. and... Um, academic centers who up until recently wanted no part in in cannabis research are now more open to it. You, you know, when it, 
your comment about I'd rather have my patient on cannabis as opposed to opiates, you know, I, I, I guess I would answer that with, you know, why does it have to be one or the other? Um, mm -hmm. so, so we could have a whole podcast on, on pain sure. management and, you know, the, the average patient struggling with pain who comes to me, you know, I'll take a history and they, they really haven't maximized the non-opiate analgesics like ibuprofen and acetaminophen and naproxen and they're not in physical therapy they're not doing aqua therapy they're not getting individual therapy just to deal with the the psychological um effects of of chronic pain um they're often not dealing with the medical comorbidities whether it's um you know obesity or or you know oftentimes they they're like way overdue for for a new MRI or getting in to see you know a specialist and so um oftentimes people start using opiates to, just because they're they're stuck they don't have the resources the money the transportation just the wherewithal to get to the right people um and and that's that's a story i've heard you know over and over as they just got stuck they couldn't deal with the pain anymore and that's when the opiate prescription started you know unfortunately it you know in maryland and everywhere in the country you know you um you know in the 90s and 2000s these opiate pill mills popped up and people know where to go to to to, to be guaranteed a scripture, prescription for opiates and you had the um jco which is the kind of accrediting body for medical facilities pushing that pain is the fifth vital sign and doctors were put under a lot of pressure to get those subjective pain scores down. And it was just kind of this perfect storm for many, many people getting hooked on opiates and um, not really maximizing all the other interventions that we know help pain. So, you know, um, you know, do I think cannabis can be part of a pain management plan? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, we know that addiction rates for cannabis are lower than addiction rates for opiates. Yeah. People don't overdose. People don't die on 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 cannabis. So it's I, I don't think it has to be one or the other. I, I think they I think opiates do have a place in pain management, and I think cannabis can have a place in pain management. Yeah, I, I probably simplified an extremely complex um, question. This was sort of an off-the-cuff uh, anecdotal conversation from, from a psychiatrist, but I always sort of grabbed onto that. He's, I think he said something, yeah, I'd ra rather do weed than that, but very big question. Now I'm going to put you on the spot before we end because this seems very important work and also really challenging work, right? Like, So what what like drives you to do this? Like, What do you... Like for you, like what? What's when you think about this? Like, yeah, like what drives you? You know, it, like why, why, why treat heroin at heroin problems in Baltimore? Yeah, and don't do something else. So, addiction treatment never had a home for a very long time. It was really AA and NA and and the methadone clinic system, but you know, mainstream medicine really saw it as this isn't our problem. This isn't, this isn't part of traditional medicine and, and psychiatrists 
for the longest time would say, well, if you're, if you have an addiction, you're not even, you're not even a candidate for psychiatric treatment, you know, take care of your addiction and come back and see me when you're, when you're really so, oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, You know, maybe up until five, you know, that's a change in the last five, 10 years up until recently, mainstream psychiatry would say people with addiction don't benefit from psychiatric medicines or psychotherapy Mm. Care of your addiction first, and then come back. So they go to they go to the twelve step in the clinic, and right. come back come back later. Right. Wow. wow. That's and, really- and outcomes for people struggling with addiction have just been so poor for so long, and and I I, I saw it, and and I just said I I can't watch people die, mm. and we know when people are able to consolidate their health care medical, psychiatric, addiction, if people can get everything under one roof, outcomes are going to be better. And I just said that there's no reason why psychiatrists can't treat addiction. Um, and, 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 and it makes, you know, we, we were trained to talk to people with trauma and, and yeah. um, all kinds of mental conditions. What why can't we talk to people about their addiction? That that's what we're trained to do is to talk yeah. to people about really hard stuff. And it just made sense that psychiatrists were we're we were trained to do this. We should be doing this. And I that that's what drives me is I just I I I I couldn't bear the thought of people dying unnecessarily when when the the, the effective treatments are just right there in front of us. It it it's just a matter of people not having the access and, and we, we need to provide that access. That is very beautiful. I think your patients are lucky to have you. I could, we just met today, I, but I can feel your compassion and, and your passion for this. And thank you for doing the work that you do. Is there anything else that people should know that we maybe missed before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I would say if, if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, um, you know, reach out for help tell Mm -hmm. tell your primary care doctor tell your therapist if you have one this is not something you need to be ashamed about um there is effective treatment out there for behavioral addictions for opiates for alcohol for for smoking you know the first step is just asking for help and and there are a lot of there's a lot of help out there and if the first person you reach out to may not be able to help you but I'm sure they know someone who is. Um, so just get the help that you need and don't be ashamed Don't yeah. be ashamed of it. I would imagine shame is a big factor because there's so much judgment out there and it's, it's so nice. I can feel your non-judgmental vibes mm-hmm. talking to you. So if people need a prescription, where can they find you? <laughs> that was a joke. Where, <laughs> where, 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 um, do you want to throw out a website or an email or, or anything like that? You, you don't, you yeah, so um, um, SAMHSA, spelled S-A-M-H-S-A, has a uh, provider database for mm-hmm. um, anyone who's struggling with opiates, and mm-hmm. they'll link you to providers who, um, who prescribe Suboxone. Um, S-A-M-S-H-A dot com? S-A-M-H-S-A dot com. H-S-A. Got it. Yep. Um, so I would say that website plus your your primary care provider, um, th- those are probably the best two ways to get to get linked to treatment. Well, 
Dr. Oviedo, thank you very, very much. It is a real pleasure and I think very important. I hope people got a lot out of this. I know they will. I did. There was so many fascinating things. I had no idea. Psychiatrists weren't treating addiction until what, five years ago? Anyway. Until just recently. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to have you back so we can we can get into the pain management or the weed a little more. I know there's like ten each of those topics are like ten podcasts or something. Sure. Yeah, happy to be here. This was great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, have a great one. You too. See you. And there you have it, Dr. Enrique Oviedo. Thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Super passionate. I can tell that he is about the work he does. It's important work, and I'm so glad I was able to talk to him. I mean, he's a friend of a friend. My friend introduced me to him. Never met him before. Really enjoyed um, meeting him and talking to him. And I hope you all got something out of that, particularly the part where we talk about kids and you know how to talk to them about these things. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much again. Hope you're well and healthy and safe. And please consider giving us a five-star review, subscribing, telling someone about this. Take care.